Welcome to Getting Work to Work, a weekly podcast exploring the creative and curious world of work through monologues and conversations with creative entrepreneurs, storytellers, and change makers. Some of my favorite people to talk with on Getting Work to Work have transformed an obsession with a subject or idea into a creative project. Today's guest, Mike Schiff, took his fascination with filmmaking, horror, and heavy metal and created a documentary film, The History of Metal and Horror. In this conversation, he tells stories of getting hooked on horror, listening to film scores and soundtracks, watching Universal Monster movies, and learning how to create practical effects. From there, Mike shares how he got into filmmaking, when the idea for a documentary on metal and horror came to him, how he kept the project alive year after year, and the art of interviewing celebrities. Show notes and links to all the good stuff mentioned in this episode can be found at gwtw.co slash 666. It was funny, I was... uh just kind of sitting here reflecting on my journey of being a metalhead. And it's been about 30 years for me. And I was thinking about before I got into metal, I was really into like Bon Jovi and poison. Yeah. That gives you kind of the era that I, that I grew up in. Sure. For me, it was Metallica's injustice for all that changed the entire trajectory of my music identity. Mm-hmm. What was the album for you that just changed everything? Um, well, it's funny because I really didn't get into metal until later on, maybe into the nineties, you know, so early on, I wasn't, wasn't a huge music fan per se, but I was big on film soundtracks, you know, so I loved, so I think, I think like the Lost Boys soundtrack might've been one of the first albums I ever bought. Uh, so I was, I was, you know, into that. Then I'd buy all the, like the Elm Street soundtracks and there was like, you know, and, uh, the scores and the soundtracks. So I, I was exposed to a lot of different types of music, but I mean, yeah, like late, late eighties, uh, you know, I was like, I was more of like a Prince fan than anything else. Like it was a huge Prince fan, but then I started getting more into like, um, you know, grunge. And then I was a huge Nirvana fan. And, and I think through that, I started getting into the heavier stuff along the way. And then I really kind of, backtracked and caught up with you know metallica and megadeth and um you know and some of the the earlier bands pantera uh and then got into the newer stuff you know when i started going to festivals you know Ozfest and all that and i started getting to slipknot and lamb of god and like all these other you know more uh more modern bands but yeah it took me a while to really get into it so i'd say you know probably in the mid mid to late 90s is when it kind of blossomed musically in that sense no one particular album really i, I think there's just so many that I really, uh, really loved. I mean, you know, something like Metallica, Ride the Lightning, or uh, or something like that might be, you know, some that stand out. But um, yeah, just just too many to really uh, <laughs> to really imagine. I don't think there's one in particular. I think it's just you know just a a, a slew of like kind of an onslaught of yeah. different bands and, and albums over the years. Yeah, I love the word onslaught too because it with metal it does feel like there's so much out there. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, the names that you listed there are like the pinnacle bands in the genre in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But and yeah, it is really kind of, especially when you go to like a metal festival and then it's just like it's coming at you, you know, for all these different <laughs> bands is kind of from all different directions and stuff. So, yeah. yeah, I love that your entry into metal and horror was on the horror side of things. It sounds like mm-hmm. is that where your desire to become a filmmaker kind of came from? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got into horror very early on because my dad was a huge horror fan. So he he grew up on the the you know he grew, he grew up in the 30s and 40s you know so he was big on uh, the Universal films. Okay. So he loved Frankenstein and Dracula and and all those. And then later on he got into the Hammer films. So he was like a huge Hammer uh, fan, especially Curse of Frankenstein was probably his favorite film of all time. Um, so there was a lot of that at at home. You know, we kind of watch stuff whenever it would come up on TV. This is you know we're talking about uh, late seventies, early eighties. We didn't even have a VHS player yet, so it's like whatever was on was on. You know, uh, and I do have memories of of catching like Salem's Lot when it was on TV. You know, The Shining and and The Exorcist and all these uh, you know the the big ones. You know, the classics. Uh, but then I'd start just catching stuff with like, some of Sunday morning movies and uh, and different programs where you'd see a lot of horror stuff. So I was big on that very, very early on. And then, of course, when VHS came out, then I started hitting the video stores like crazy. And it was just like dollar day at the video stores on Sundays. And I'd pick up like five horror movies every single week and just binge on those. Um, but yeah, so so really got heavy, heavy into horror early on and originally wanted to be a special effects artist. That was like my original you know, career goal, like what I really wanted to do. So I was a big fan of like Dick Smith and Tom Savini. Uh, and who know, you know, who, who would have figured that so many years later, Tom and I would not be like, you know, good friends and stuff. So, uh, so it's funny how, how life, life works out that way. But yeah, so, so then, but I was fortunate enough to, you know, um, in junior high school, it's actually when I first started getting my hands on film equipment, they had a animation class and then they had other film classes and, uh, all the way, you know, from junior high to college, I was taking film programs, you know, so I was uh, always doing it in school. And then I was doing a lot of stuff on the side, you know, with my friends and family, you know, have fun doing that kind of stuff. But yeah, I kind of abandoned the special effects for a while and got a little bit more into writing and directing uh, after that, you know, later in my teen years. So yeah, that was kind of like the evolution of what I wanted to do. Awesome. I, I love that idea of of being able to like, see something that you're so you know immersed in as a kid and then feeling like it was accessible to you mm -hmm. to be able to yeah. go after it yeah for sure i mean just you know to see stuff uh in the films and then to just get my hands on some clay and some latex and all the other different things and start creating stuff so i'd make my own freddy masks and i do all that kind of stuff and i had uh you know family who did a lot of um uh shop work and stuff so they built me like real metal freddy gloves and oh, wow. <laughs> things like that so it was uh yeah i was kind of you know i was kind of a fanatic back then yeah. <laughs> everything was like freddy all the time and you know on my uh notepads in school i'd be you know drawing out freddy gloves and and stuff like that so but you know i was always trying to stay kind of artistic and to some yeah. degree but yeah so those those were those were fun times and i of course bring a lot of weird special effects stuff to school you know i think on uh, valentine's day junior high i brought a heart-shaped box on valentine's day and i had a real bloody heart <laughs> inside with a pump and everything so that was you know i was that kid teachers loved you i bet <laughs> yeah they didn't I, like i didn't gross up the teachers during class it was more like during uh you know lunch periods and and stuff nice. like that uh but i do remember once in in one of the film courses in uh in high school they had a special effects artist come over and i brought some of the stuff that I had i had worked on so it was uh you know and he, he thought it was pretty impressive so it was kind of cool to actually get feedback from a professional at that point uh on, on some of the work i was doing so that was kind of cool because no one else in my school was doing that kind of stuff did you follow that same trajectory out of high school into college age uh, and go to college for that? Or did you go a different route from, you know, to get into filmmaking? 
No, I still uh, I still did it. You know, I, uh, I went to um, junior high and high school in, in the Bronx, and then I went to City College in Manhattan. And uh, yeah, they they you know my main thing was to find which schools had the best film programs, right? And of course, there was NYU, there was SVA, and all these other schools. But they you know they cost a fortune. And you know, one thing that I would say to a lot of people kind of getting into it is like don't go into debt over film school. <laughs> it's one of the you know it's one of the worst things you can do. It doesn't make any sense. You know the money. There's so much stuff you can learn like online and and uh, things for free these days that um, you take that money that you're going to put into film school, you know, $100,000 or whatever, $200,000, $500,000, whatever it's costing and invest that money into your own film, you know what I mean? And, and do it that way. Uh, it's a lot easier these days than it was back then when I was in school because you had to actually like buy film stuff unless you got like really crappy video. <laughs> we, there was no 24P video at that time. Uh, so you can, you know, it's like, if you want the film look, you buy the film stuff, but that's really expensive. So, but yeah, I followed through in, in college, majored in film, uh, and minored in, in English and creative writing and all that kind of stuff. So everything was kind of geared towards, uh, moving in the, in the film and video direction. So I was, you know, I was doing documentary stuff and narrative stuff and, uh, but horror was always sort of the theme, but I was also doing a lot of comedy at the same time as well, which was uh, kind of a different different direction. But for, for whatever reason, uh, I had a lot of fun doing that too. But horror was always like my ultimate focus of what I wanted to do. Oh, that's cool. What What's so cool is I discovered your documentary, The History of Metal and Horror, through Megadeth's Instagram channel, actually, because they shared it a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And I saw the trailer and the amazing poster art by Brian Allen. I mean, mm -hmm. phenomenal artwork. I knew it was for me. I'm just like, this, this is, this is a movie made for me. And so as, as you're going through this journey of life, at what point do you like decide to make a film about metal and horror? Uh, so in 2014, Kirk Hammett was putting on his Fear Fest Evil convention in California. Uh, my friend Rob, who's also a producer on the film, um, he, you know, he's known Kirk for a bunch of years. So Kirk invited him to come on board to help, you know, put some stuff together. And then Rob called me, he said, hey, Kirk's putting on this big show. Uh, do you want to come out and do some photography, some video, do some coverage of the event and maybe help out here? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I flew out. And uh, and it was just it was an awesome weekend. And Kirk, what Kirk wanted to do was really bring together his two favorite things, heavy metal and horror, and yeah. put on a big show where he, you know, brought both worlds together, had, you know, stars from both heavy metal and horror, you know, come together and sign autographs and perform and do all kinds of cool stuff. And after the weekend, kind of think about it all. And I'm like, you know, it's like, we all know that there's been this connection between heavy metal and horror for a long time, but there hadn't yet been a documentary made on why this connection exists and, and, and everything. So between all the people that we knew, you know, a lot of the uh, horror celebs and a few metal ones, um, which figured, hey, you know, we we know enough people that we could start lining up a few interviews. And, you know, I started putting a list together of sort of like, you know, the people that I really wanted, you know, those that we already knew, that would be easy to start with. So uh, so that's how, kind of how it started. And because I knew Chris Jericho from working on uh, one of his music videos back in the day, he was <laughs> the first person I reached out to because he was, he was performing in New York like yeah. around that time. And I said, hey, Chris, I'm thinking about doing this documentary. You know, do you want to do an interview? You know, if if you have some time before your show in New York, he said, absolutely. So that was the first one that we shot. I think it was at the end of uh, 2014. And um, then we just kept on going from there, you know, so which was not easy because, you know, you kind of like people are donating their time. So you got to work around their schedule. So right. a lot of it is just sort of like waiting and also waiting for the right opportunity 
to get you know to get some interviews at conventions or um music festivals or whatever like whenever they could squeeze you in for a few minutes yeah oh that's cool like does it come naturally to you to just like ask for that interview or did you have to like steal yourself to be like i have to ask chris jericho for an interview <laughs> uh no it wasn't too weird i think um i mean i grew up very shy you know, so I was, I was, uh, you know, just not outgoing. I, I was kind of like nervous about, you know, speaking to people, especially if there were celebrities that I was uh, you know, a fan of or whatever. But later on, and I think, you know, working, I, I worked at the Howard Stern show for about eight years. So through there, working as a producer, you know, I had to interact with a lot of people and some celebrities here and there. And, you know, I kind of get used to being in that environment and not being nervous or, or or anything like that it's just like all right this is a job you know we need to get the job done and we got to talk to these people and we got to make arrangements and build relationships and everything so so i think from there you know i just got really comfortable speaking to people and everything and there was you know there were definitely moments when i was like oh, you know should i approach this person should i reach out to you know whoever but after a while it's just like all right you know if i can't get to them directly i reach out to their management deal with the management um, and then just, you know, kind of learn how to really uh, engage with them because, you know, a lot of the management teams are just very, you know, no nonsense, straight to the business, you know, and, and everything. So I wanted to really, um, that's one thing that, you know, I just had to learn how to really, you know, kind of conduct myself in a way where it's like to the point and, um, you know, but also just being very, you know, polite and respecting the boundaries and all this kind of stuff too. But, yeah. um, but also just, you know, really needing to kind of present to them what it is that I'm trying to do and and uh to make it as as enticing as possible because it's not like I'm paying them you know to be part of this it's like you know are you are you able to donate some time to chat because you just love the subject matter and that's yeah. really what it was all about I love that you said that in the early days you were really shy yeah. how did you have to create like a persona in order to go from shy Mike to like producer Mike, or was it just like, I, I have to do it. I have to change. Yeah. I mean, I, I, th I think it wasn't, it didn't feel forced. It just kind of came naturally. And I think I got used to it. Uh, but yeah, there, there are definitely times when, you know, maybe I might be, uh, you know, at a, at a festival or a convention or something like that. And then, you know, and, and I meet someone maybe for the first time or whatever, and I want to present to them, you know, the documentary and ask them if they want to be involved. And sometimes my brain just goes on like autopilot. You know, it's just like, all right, here's the deal, you know, and and kind of lay it out there and stuff. So it so in a sense, like even though I'm still, you know, I'm not as outgoing and and wild and crazy in real life, you know, it's like when when it comes down to having to do the business and and get something done, um, you know, just I just kind of switch it on and uh and get it done. And then afterwards I can take a breath and be like, okay great that went well <laughs> you know I, I scored an interview and uh or commitment to an interview or whatever like that yeah. so but uh but yeah it's it's definitely it, sometimes it takes me a little bit out of my comfort zone you know in, in dealing with that especially if you're dealing with different types of personalities you know and, and right. everything but yeah at, at this point i'm just kind of used to it so you know i don't the shyness shyness doesn't work in this industry <laughs> you <laughs> no, have to uh yeah you, you have to put that to the side you know and then just kind of switch switch on um you know put on your game face and and get the work done yeah well it's so fascinating to hear the journey too because i i think for a lot of creative people it, it's important to hear this journey important mm -hmm. to hear these lessons because i mean you go from chris jericho to Kirk Hammett to Rob Zombie to uh was it Lon Chaney Jr. I mean you're you're interviewing big names. 
mm-hmm. famous, famous people. And at, at a certain point, I mean, you can get steamrolled emotionally by the people that you're sitting across from if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, just it's it's so important to, you know, to show respect and and uh respect boundaries and really make them feel comfortable yeah. because they are donating their time. It's like, you know, they don't want to be you know, feeling weird about a particular question or they don't want to be put off by any type of, uh, you know, behavior or, or whatever. So everything's just got to be, just got to keep everything cool, you know, yeah. set up lights, cameras very calmly, professionally, you know, if they're there while you're setting up, you know, just kind of have like light conversation, you know, and, um, you know, I think we did that with, uh, with Dave Mustaine, you know, went to his house, you know, so he was just kind of hanging out and, we're setting up and there was like a little bit of banter in between just, you know, chatting, making some small talk while I'm trying to focus on setting up, you know, a couple of cameras and lights and audio. Uh, I did, I didn't want just like radio silence, you know, until we set up, like I wanted to also make the most of the, of the time there, you know, to be able to like chat with Dave and, or whoever it was, uh, I just wanted to make the most, you know, the most of that, but yeah, making, making the, the interviewee feel comfortable. is just like, it's really important because they've done millions of interviews over the years and stuff. And, it's it's very easy for them to have a bad experience with someone who's just not uh professional or or just awkward or whatever so that's one thing that um i also learned over the years is just you know really how to you know not that i'm not being myself but just knowing kind of like where they're at you know and how much distance they need and uh how much they're interested in in sharing and and talking and not you know being a blabbermouth either if they don't feel like talking at that particular moment it's like all right i'm just going to set up over here you know when we're setting when we're ready i'll let you know and don't jump hop in the chair that we'll we'll get going but yeah. you kind of just got to feel it out because everyone's a little bit different what were there any moments where you did allow yourself to fanboy a little bit or was it all 100 professional i mean was, they, were, they were all professional um but you know obviously i was like fans of a lot of these guys you know so so there were more, you know, I mean, you know, I guess to some degree they were, you know, while I'm there, it's like, holy crap, I'm like here with Alice Cooper. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> you know, I was like Alice, like holy cow, that's like this ridiculous John Carpenter, you know, and yeah. we're, you know, we're sitting here and uh, you know, just doing an interview and and stuff. And it's um so yeah, so, th- so there's like, you know, definitely a part of me that was like, this is awesome. Oh my God, you know, but at the same time, it's like, well, this is this is work, you know, and and uh and I'm thinking about how while we're going, like how this is all kind of pieced together, you know. So I'm kind of like in edit mode at the same time, you know, it's like, all right, he just said this, that would, you know, work well with something that someone else says. I could put that together, but I need to kind of follow up a little bit on on this thing. So um, so so yeah, so my brain is kind of like always working on on the angles and making sure that I get the content needed because, you know, I, I, cause I'm putting the storyline together. So I'm thinking about past interviews and how they all work together. And, um, and a lot of my questions had sort of changed along the way, right. Um, depending on how things were, had been going up to that point. But, uh, but yeah, so th- there was, you know, I mean, I admire like all these people so much and there were definitely some that I've been like a you know huge fan of more than others. I don't know, not, not too much of a fanboy. But you know, I kind of kept that to myself, you know. I stayed, I stayed professional. Yeah, there, there were a couple of moments where I'm like, "How in the world did 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 he work through this experience?" Because it's like I think the Guar guys were, were a good example of just like they were just crazy. Like, yeah, I, I can't, I can imagine that that was probably a lot different of an experience than mm-hmm. interviewing Alice Cooper. 
Yeah. Well, they, I mean, they told, they told us initially, they said, look, you know, we can do an interview in costume or out of costume. Out of costume is going to be very straight interview, uh, but in costume is going to be in character. So initially we were like, oh, we can get some of the guys now, but they'll be out of costume. But it actually worked out better where I was able to catch them in costume after their uh, performance at uh, at NotFest. Um, and I just think having them in costume is just the way to do it, you know, and having them in character. And I mean, because you got some great lines from, from these guys in the film that we wouldn't have had otherwise, you know, they yeah. would have played it very straight. But in character, I think they were just hilarious. So um you know, and and they were they were definitely busting our chops while we we're doing the interview because they were in character, and that's just yeah. what they do. So, uh, but yeah, it was just, it was just a lot of you know good fun with those guys. Yeah, that's a, that's awesome. So you said you started in 2014 mm-hmm. with that Chris Jericho interview, and I, I'm I'm intrigued with this idea of as you're interviewing people, you're you're connecting the storyline through past interviews and what they're saying. As it's going on one year, two year, five years, six years, like that's a lot of mental bandwidth to really be thinking and living with this subject. How how did you keep it all together? I mean, it was definitely, uh, it was draining, you know, in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, because I was doing so much of the work myself, mm-hmm. it's not like I have like a huge team. You know, where it's like you can send guys out like, oh, you know, we can get this guy over here and this guy over here. You know, I'll send a crew out there. I'll send a crew over here. I think just get everything done. It's like, all right, send it off to the editor, you know, package it up and and all the stuff. It's like, you know, I'm doing everything you know, for the most part myself. I'm, I'm flying out to all these different places. I'm shooting all the stuff, bringing it home, piecing it together, um, you know. And uh, so there was uh, just a lot of work there and a lot of waiting too, because you know, like the Rob Zombie interview took about a year to get because he's as busy, you know, he's a very busy guy, which is understandable. So, uh, so there's a lot of waiting. It's not like you know, like a film where you just, you know, you hire the actors, the crew, everyone's there for a certain amount of time. You get it done in like you know two months or whatever, job's done, you know, and, and everything like that. It's like, well, you know, you might not get this person for another year, but it's worth waiting because it's a major get. So there was a lot of that. Then, then there was also a lot of waiting for um, for some people that, that I really wanted to get, but ultimately didn't work out for whatever reason. So uh, there was a lot of waiting without a payoff and and everything. Um, so yeah, so it was it was definitely. Uh, sort of an exhausting process, and then at the same time, you know, I'm dealing with like you know illnesses and deaths in the family, and just a lot of a lot of different things that were just you know hit, hit a couple of roadblocks here and there, uh, you know, just emotionally. And then sometimes I had to kind of put things on hold, like all right, I got to deal with this family stuff for a while, put the film on the back burner, and so it's just uh, you know a lot of a lot of different things happen, but um, but I never never gave up on it because yeah. yeah I mean in a lot of ways it is a passion project it's something that couldn't get you know guarantee me any major financial payoff but at the same time it was fun to do and um, and you just never know and I think it I mean it definitely opened up a lot of doors so it was, it's uh, it was well worth uh, working on all those years yeah and just to see it through I mean through everything that you said you went through and I think. I think it brings another it just brings a depth to the project that if you look at it just on the surface it's like oh a documentary about metal and horror but the, the, as you hear the story behind the scenes just you know what you're going through as an artist to create it I don't know those are the kind of things that we want to hear because it it brings life even more life to creative work Yeah yeah and at you know at the end of the film I dedicated the uh, I dedicated the film to 
to three people, my cousin, uh, Peter, uh, who passed away a couple of some years back, he actually introduced, he's, he was the first one to really introduce me to, to heavy music. You know, he got, he was a huge metal head in the eighties and in yeah. nineties. And he was always trying to introduce me to, you know, the, the early stuff, Metallica and, you know, and Megadeth and all these bands. And he got it, he got me into grunge as well. So that kind of like helped get me in that direction. So I credit him for my introduction to, to metal in a lot of ways uh you know he passed away and my dad of course introduced me to horror when i was a kid uh he passed away a couple of years ago and then my mom was also like someone who really um always you know supported my dreams no matter what uh so you know with with all those things together you know i don't know that i would have been able to make this film without having those inspirations and support uh all those years so that um that meant a lot and that's why i dedicated the film to to them yeah and uh it's it, you know and it's unfortunate that none of you know, none of them ever got to see the final product but uh uh hopefully in in, in some form they they were able to kind of look down and, and see what i was up to <laughs> exactly one of my favorite moments of the doc was when john schnapp showed up and was mm -hmm. interviewed and i really loved seeing him immortalized in the film because he came to portland one year when he was uh on tour for the was it the superman Nicolas mm -hmm. Cage Superman documentary that he did. Yeah. And it's just, I love how documentary can be uh, something that immortalizes people that mm -hmm. have passed. Um, yeah. It just, yeah. It, especially for those in the know, it just feels good to be like, oh, yes. You know, the, the director of Metal Metalopolis. Metalopolis. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, that's awesome. Yeah, and and the same. You know, we lost three people from the film. We lost him. We lost Gunnar Hansen. You know, we lost Sid Haig. So, um, you know, and and when I play the film for for certain certain audiences who are you know familiar with them and fans of theirs, there's always you know kind of a reaction in the crowd. You know, when when they see one of them pop up on the screen, and, um, a couple of you know a couple of tears were shed from people here and there who who knew that also knew them very well and you know got to see them on screen sort of in their old way you know guys like sid um unfortunately you know deteriorated health-wise fairly quickly so a lot of people for them their last memory was sid you know not doing well and uh so to see him up there you know just more healthy and lively and everything i think brought back a lot of great memories for for a lot of people and and you know guy you know sid and gunner and, and john just being themselves you know not performing as or as in a role in a film which you could always you know rent and watch but just being just conversation yeah. which was uh which was very cool for a lot of people to see yeah and that's that's what i personally love about documentary and interview is the conversation the the way that you don't have to necessarily take on a, a character you can just be who you are and yeah. i think you see that with like rob zombie for example like i always think mm -hmm. of him as a character from his white yeah. hobby days but uh, it didn't feel like a character to me he felt like himself or my mm -hmm. perception of himself you know yeah yeah no he was he was totally uh himself and, and very humble and cool too i think you know when we first met up with him uh, for the interview, the first thing he said to us was, "Hey, I'm so sorry it took this long to get the interview." Uh, so, but that, but that's just kind of how how he was, you know. And he he can sometimes come across as being like a very serious, you know, type of guy, or whatever. And but he was just he uh, was just the nicest, friendliest, and most most humble guy. So that's um, that was very very nice to see. And he just made the interview 
really, uh, really easy. When you think about interviews, did you learn a lot from working on the Howard Stern show? Because he's one of the great interviewers in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, Howard revolutionized radio. I mean, he, he did interviews like nobody did, you know? So yeah, working on the show, uh, definitely, um, I mean, I had been a fan of his for for years prior to that as well, so I was kind of familiar with that. But as far as actually conducting an interview, that's uh, that's a whole different story. But because we did a lot of original programming at the at the Stern Show for the TV show, I worked in the TV department, so we did a lot of the original programming. So uh, we did a lot of interviews, you know, celebrity interviews, and um, and we even had to interview Howard himself a couple of times because of the some some of the content. So we had to really get comfortable with you know asking questions and follow-up questions and knowing the right things to ask and what to avoid so i think a lot of the sort of the interview skills came from working on the show over those years just just kind of really learning how to interact with the person that you're that you're speaking with so yeah for sure i had a good foundation from working working there were there other uh influences when it came to preparing for a conversation with with a star across from you um no not so much i think just using what i already had and uh just interacting with a lot of celebrities over the years you know i'd I'd go to a lot of these uh a lot of the horror conventions and i'd start building relationships with people like you know savini and uh doug bradley and bill mosley and stuff so you, you know kind of learn how to interact with celebrities you know and everything and um yeah, so you kind of kind of get used to that after a while. So I think be- between working at the Stern Show and also just meeting celebrities over the years and learning how to sort of speak to them and, and try to be interesting <laughs> because they meet so many people all the time and you know you just you don't want to be that boring guy. It's like oh here's this boring guy again. So I think that's one thing to you know to kind of work on as well. It's like yeah you want to be yourself, but at the same time if you want to have a relationship you know with someone, it's like you gotta bring something to the table you know you have to be interesting and to some degree so i always try to um to to be as interesting as possible (laughs) (laughs) any any uh tips on how you did that or was it just the end of the story that you've already shared i mean to me that's interesting but did you have a go-to kind of like this is going to make me interesting no i think it's just you know it, it was just being myself but also kind of feeling out, you know, so like what the person's interests are, you know, mm-hmm. like if, if we're striking, but like, I remember we had, um, uh, I went out to, uh, to dinner with, it was like me and a couple of friends and, uh, Savini was there and Corey Taylor was there. Wow. Um, we, we had just done, got done. Um, they did a live cast of, of Corey Taylor for one of his masks on one of his slipknot masks. So, uh, I kind of helped you know, come up with that idea. And then we all went out, you know, to dinner afterwards. And uh, so we were just kind of like chatting it up and it's like, you know, so Tom and I had already been friends and I knew Corey for a couple of years, but we hadn't really, you know, ever really spent time together. So, and I'm, you know, that was a big Slipknot fan. So it was kind of cool to like hang out with Corey Taylor. So, uh, but yeah, it's like, we, we just got into a lot of different conversations and I was able to kind of feel out the group and um yeah you know made them laugh with a bunch of stuff which was cool it was like oh cool i said something funny you know and you know, <laughs> <laughs> i'm not the boring guy uh but yeah but it was so it was kind of, it was it was fun being able to kind of like go back and forth with uh with guys that you know i uh, both of which uh, you know i admire their work so much over the years um 
but yeah, it's, it's just, you know, you got to kind of see what they're into, you know, what they find interesting and, and, and build on that, you know, and you can, you just feel it. Just some, most people have like a natural sense of, you know, what's working and what's not working in a conversation. You know, if, if people start to kind of drift off and like, you know, lose interest, it's like, all right, that's the time to switch gears. Whereas right. some people maybe don't have that. Whereas like they keep, they keep going on about the same stuff and then they become that guy, you know? And um, <laughs> so, so yeah, it's just, it's, you just have to have a natural sense of, of, you know, what the vibe of the the group is and, and everything. So um, it, but yeah, it's, it's cool to, to be found interesting by people that, that you admire because uh, you know, it's like, cool. You know, someone that I'm a fan of is, is, you know, found you know, something funny and something I said or something interesting or wanted me to, elaborate more on a specific uh subject or whatever so yeah, yeah. but it's, it's just general social skills you know just just uh it doesn't matter where you are you can work in an office setting and it's uh you got to learn how to just you know be be interesting and have interest in what other people are doing and just build those relationships speaking of interesting and funny the history of proctology yeah <laughs> spoiler alert <laughs> <laughs> I I loved the inclusion of the post-apocalyptic storyline with Michael Berryman as the host. Mm-hmm. And, and as you kind of created this hybrid post-apocalyptic documentary feel, I immediately thought of Through the Never, where Metallica uh-huh. made a concert film, but had the whole kind of like apocalypse narrative throughout it. Uh, were you inspired by that film or films like that in general? I don't think I had that film in mind. And I don't think I had any other one film in mind, but, you know, it's like the, the post-apocalyptic theme has, has sort of been, uh, you know, done, you know, in a lot of different ways. Uh, you take something, well, I mean, one one film maybe I thought a lot about was uh, like I Am Legend, because I was trying to sort of build the, uh, the, the scenery with a lot of the plants growing out of the concrete and the abandoned vehicles and, and all that kind of stuff. So I was looking at a lot of artwork from I Am Legend because uh, I wanted to kind of see how they put all that together. And uh, so I did, I did a lot of the effects work for that, a lot of the digital compositing and, and wow. things. So I was really kind of studying stuff like that, like a lot of the artwork uh, and uh, Walking Dead, you know, things like that, you know, just kind of see how, because they, the, the people who put those films together, like, you know, and shows, um, they did a lot of research and they kind of see how nature just kind of takes over and what it looks like, you know, when a city is just left alone. So, uh, so I got a lot of inspiration from, from stuff like that. So, uh, but yeah, but overall it's, you know, the, the post, post apocalyptic, uh, <laughs> theme has been done in a lot of different ways. So, you know, I kind of, uh, kind of took that and, and then did, did something a little bit different with that. And I just thought that doing a short film, uh, wraparound would help set up each segment of the documentary and also allow me to do a little bit more narrative work, which I haven't done in a while. And, uh, it was nice to be able to kind of do a short film at the same time um, with the uh, with the documentary. So, yeah, and that created a really cool feel too as a as a viewer. You know, going through like when it starts, I'm like, "What in the hell?" I thought this was a documentary. And, yeah. <laughs> and you know, as you start introducing this world, I'm like, "Oh, I get it. This is really cool." Mm-hmm. And I, I think when you can surprise an audience with decisions that you're making in the creative process i think that's when you you stumble onto something exciting 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I was, and I was looking to see what the reaction would be from the audiences at the festivals. Yeah. Like, are people going to start walking out because, you know, they're not seeing talking heads and, uh, yeah. and all that kind of stuff right away, or are they going to kind of sit around? And I think there were a few people that were a little confused in the beginning because, you know, they, they were just expecting a documentary. Uh, and then all of a sudden there's this film playing. So, you know, some people might have thought, oh, is, is this like a short that's going to play before the documentary or, or whatever? <laughs> but for the most part, everyone just kind of stayed in their seat and then, um, once they started seeing certain things happen in the in the film portion, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, this is I see where this is going. Did that come later towards the end of the process, or was that part of the journey all along? Uh, it was all along. It, it wasn't. Uh, I mean, the idea was to do a documentary, but then while I'm sort of putting the idea together for that, I realized like, all right, how am I going to structure this thing? You know, is it just going to be straight talking heads? Yeah. Is it just going to be a host, you know, speaking to the audience saying, Hey, you know, welcome to the history of metal and horror. Here's what, to, what we're talking about today. And just kind of like pop in there here and there and, and set up each chapter. Um, so, but very early on, I think even before we started shooting interviews, I already started thinking about like a, a wraparound element to it. So uh, only had maybe two or three different ideas for for what it would be, and yeah. I, then I just kind of landed on on the version that uh, that's there now. So it, it was, um, you know, I, I definitely took some time to think about it, and I didn't start shooting that until I was actually done with the documentary. So I think maybe in 2018 is when I started shooting the um, uh, the, the wraparound film. Wow, I'm I'm blown away by just how like the, the phrase in my mind right now is like jack of all trades like you're doing all sorts of different things and yet you're doing them well <laughs> so like okay throw away that's cliche like you're 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 able to produce high quality work in different mediums all by yourself and you're also able to collaborate i take it as well it's i i love that kind of like that's just not everyone can do that. Not everyone can work well by themselves and with, you know, others. How have mm -hmm. you learned to do that? Uh, I mean, just picking up different skills here and there. I mean, yeah. shooting and like shooting and editing, uh, you know, I've been doing for so many years, you know, if, like even professionally, just work wise, you know, even uh, just jobs to pay the bills, you know, I'm shooting and editing corporate videos <laughs> or whatever it is, right. uh, you know, early on, um, I was the first thing, you know, like I mentioned, the first thing I wanted to do is special effects work. So I was able to do this, the practical effects for, for the, this film as well. Uh, and then digital stuff like digital effects, I started doing, uh, some years back. So I was able to do, I didn't do all of it for, for, you know, for the film, but I did a lot of it. Um, and then, but certain things, you know, I shot away from, I didn't, get into sound design as much. So I outsource that uh, because, you know, it's like, if I'm not really proficient at something, I don't want to spend months and months trying to learn it and then uh, mess it up and then all this kind of stuff. So, but there, you know, there was a saying is like, you could be a jack of all trades and, and a master of none. So that was always something in the back of my mind. I didn't want to just like try to do everything myself because yeah. I knew that I would fall short in certain areas, you know? So there were certain visual effects that I knew I couldn't handle. So I outsourced those. And then for the sound design, I always outsourced that uh, in music and all that kind of stuff as well. Um, so I, I knew what my limitations were. Like I knew how much I could, I could actually handle. So I just hope that, uh, you know, I was able to do you know a good job with, with what I was capable of doing and, and make it effective. Yeah, for sure. An important 
section of the film is on censorship. So mm -hmm. anyone familiar with metal and horror, I mean, double dose of censorship right there <laughs> and how, oh, yeah. how yeah. society has responded to both of those. How has your view of censorship evolved as you worked on this film and got to experience the different kind of forms of it in metal and horror? Uh, I mean, obviously, being a fan of of both, I'm not a fan of most forms of censorship. Um, you know, I think to some degree, I'm not I'm not a, a no boundaries type of guy either. I think I think some boundaries are good. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think kids should be exposed to Serbian film. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or Cannibal Holocaust, or 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 anything like that. You know, the more fantasy stuff, like it's okay. I, like you know, we were all kids. We all saw Elm Street and and these movies and stuff like that. But, you know, I think to some degree you have to have certain boundaries. And I think that, you know, there are people who are, you know, too young for certain things, susceptible to, to certain things. Uh, but at the same time, you know, censorship can of course get too out of control, you know, where you're just like put a blanket censorship on everything and you're putting labels on this and that. And the other thing, I think you have to kind of let parents be parents right. and, uh, and hopefully they'll do the right thing by their kids. Uh, but for, like the government to come in and start micromanaging how artists are are doing their things or uh you know just sort of controlling what's allowed to get out there i think is you know has definitely definitely went very far too far um you know in the 80s with like the satanic panic and i think it was even worse in the uk where they were they were really like finding people for releasing or making certain videos available and uh and stuff like that and it was pretty bad here in the us us too but for the most part, if you wanted something, you were able to get it, you know, sometimes jump, jump through a few hoops or whatever. Uh, <laughs> but, but at the same time, you know, I, I think sometimes there are, there are artists who just try to do nothing but shock, you know, the audiences and they just try to get a reaction. And, um, you know, I think with stuff like, you know, horror and metal, it's like, you know, those are those are genres that you kind of have to seek out. You know, it's not just like in your face. You know, where like like pop music is just everywhere. You know what I mean? You'll see pop music at the Super Bowl and you see it at the award shows and and all this kind of stuff. You're not really seeing, uh, you know, a lot of like really dark metal bands. You know, in mainstream me uh, media uh, or horror. You know, you're not getting that in in um, it's sort of in, in the mainstream. Uh, but like pop music, you know, is, is, is just always out there. So I think when they start pushing too many boundaries, you know, in, in, in stuff that's like in your face where kids are really heavily exposed to it. And I, I don't mean, I don't believe in government censorship in that sense, but I yeah. think to some point, it, it's kind of nice to have sort of, you know, a ceiling to some degree where it's like, okay, you know, it's like, you don't want to go that far. It's like having like a little bit of restraint i think can be good to to some degree where it's like i think that makes what's available even more exciting it's like oh they went really close you know to, right. to a level but didn't go over it and I, I think that kind of uh that makes things a little bit more interesting as well as, as opposed to just being as wild and disgusting or or whatever you can be and just putting it out there because then it's like how far can you really go after that you know like in, in the in the 80s you know it was like oh wow i can't believe they they went there you know what i mean um but you know it's like they kind of capped it to a degree and uh you know i think if you were to make something like serbian film or, or cannibal holocaust just like mainstream i don't think that's that's a healthy thing necessarily yeah. for society i think there are certain things that should stay 
really kind of underground and you know if you kind of discover stuff and you're exploring and you come across them it's like all right fine but um you know i, I think to to a degree there are certain things that aren't really healthy for the general population so right. uh, long long answer but you know it's it's sort of like i kind of have like a you know love hate thing with with censorship in a way i don't really believe in censorship per se but at the same time i think creative people um you know should also kind of think about you know what their art is is bringing to society like is it a good thing is it just fantasy you can watch a movie just kind of like have, have fun with it move on with your life or is there stuff that's really kind of resonant you know stick in your brain to you know um kind of mess you up in in some ways and and mess up your behavior or whatever uh you know and i and i don't think that we need to really you know control people that that much i think people need to make their own decisions to be responsible but unfortunately there are a lot of people who are exposed to things that that they shouldn't be whether they're you know too young and their parents just aren't paying attention or whatever but um but you know i think that uh some boundaries are are good for society yeah i think where i where i went initially in this in the thinking about censorship was was not just government censorship but like corporation censorship like thinking mm -hmm. about like youtube and the algorithms and how that can kind of create artificial boundaries mm -hmm. to what's being created and and so i love the idea of being able to have that kind of sense of what's too far mm -hmm. but then what happens when that line is artificially shifted based upon yeah. some monetization algorithm that's deemed this is what you need to do in order to make money on this platform. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's one thing if someone, you know, puts up a video of a, of a beheading on, uh, on YouTube or, or, or whatever, or, um, you know, Twitter or whatever it is, because then you're like, you're scrolling and then you just see, you see something that you weren't looking for, you know, and it could really mess you up. So, yeah. So pulling stuff like that, of course, you know, makes sense, but where they start going too far is like, you know, someone gave us certain political opinion, you know what I mean? And then it's like, oh, well, we can't have that because we disagree with that political point. So we got to pull this and pull that and pull everyone associated with this. You know, that, that's where they really get um, too crazy, you know, with, with censorship and trying to control narratives and trying to control what people think when it's just it's like, I think, you know, every, both sides should be shared. You know, you should be able to debate these issues and know what the other side is talking about. Uh, and not be shielded away from everything just because the powers that be, you know, don't agree with it. You know, so that type of censorship, I'm really, really against. You know, and I think that's that's harmful for you know to society because then people aren't getting the whole story. You know, and it's the same thing with you know whether it's uh, political or medical. You know, whatever it's like. You know, we need to have the information. Let people make decisions on their own. Let them hear the different arguments instead of just getting one side because you know powerful entities are controlling this uh this medium so that's um that's a form of censorship that i'm not a fan of at all you know the obvious stuff you know of course you know murder and <laughs> nasty nasty things uh fine but outside of that i think it should just be an open forum where people can freely express themselves and um get their ideas out yeah one of the one of the things that i have to bring up about metal and horror is community mm -hmm. it's such like at least for me i've had very welcoming experiences where i felt part of the community 
And and I get that feeling throughout your entire film as well. Just like mm-hmm. people are welcomed by both communities, it seems. Yeah, definitely. Uh, because we all, we all share the same interest. And we also, most of us do kind of feel like outcasts in, in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, if you're the metal guy or the, the horror guy or girl, you know, in school, it's like you're in a very small club. <laughs> you know, you're not you're not amongst the mainstream. <laughs> Uh, you know, you're doing different things. When I was in junior high and high school, I was doing all my horror stuff, you know, so, you know, I couldn't really, I mean, I had a lot of friends, but I, w- I wasn't like the popular kid, you know, I wasn't the one that everyone knew or wanted to know. It's like, oh, you know, that's the kid who's doing all the weird special effects stuff. And, <laughs> you know, he's the weird, quiet kid, you know, and, and all that kind of kind of <laughs> thing. So, uh, but yeah, but, but a lot of people can relate to that, you know, and, and the metal heads in school, it's like they, they have a very small kind of unit uh because they they have interests that the larger groups don't have you know and so they're able to share that and then of course when you go to a horror convention it's like everyone who's into the same thing you know they're all there and it is like a community in a lot of ways and same thing if you go to a metal show and you jump into that mosh pit you know it's uh you know as crazy and wild and sometimes as violent as it can be right you know it's like if you fall down you got about 10 guys you know jumping in there to pick you up you know what i mean and and everyone's there to just have a good time because you're just you're sharing the same interest and in, in something so uh so yeah you kind of you do stick together in a, in a lot of ways so whenever i talk to filmmakers who have made a documentary that has gone on for a very long time five to ten years in production post-production to completion um they always have a the same answer to this question but do you think you'll ever make another feature-length documentary film again i might (laughs) yes (laughs) i might uh yes nothing 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 in mind right now but i'm always kind of like paying attention to what's going on in the world uh and seeing if there's an interesting thing It's, it's i think also uh, because this one took so long to make and took so much effort and was so much uh, work, you know, on myself, um, I probably wouldn't want to have to go through that again. Right. I think if I were to do another doc, it would need to be with a larger team, you know, so I can kind of yeah. share some of the responsibilities and not do everything myself. I th- and especially now, you know, I, I have a wife and I have two kids at home, so it's like I just don't have that kind of time. Uh, and I don't have the the flexibility to just like pick up and go jump on a flight to LA to grab a couple of interviews or whatever, just whenever I want. It's like everything has to be very, very well planned and uh, and everything because, you know, having two kids at home is like, and we just had another one two months ago. So it's like having, uh, you know, small kids at home is, is a lot for one parent to to manage. So I don't want to be out gallivanting, you know, doing all this uh, this fun documentary stuff while my wife is at home, uh, you know, uh, taking care of the kids and you know pulling her hair out because she's doing it by herself. So I have to be mindful of that because, of course, you know, the kids come first and family is always first. So uh, so keeping that in mind, you know, I have to carefully plan out what the next project is going to be. And I mean, ultimately what I really, really like to do is uh feature film, like narrative films. Oh, nice. So I have a couple of screenplays I wrote some years back that I would eventually like to put together. So I think once the, the timing comes together, then, uh, then I'll start doing that. But I mean, like docs, docs are great because, um, you know, they're, they're, you know, you don't have to just like come up with an idea from scratch and write a whole script. It's like the story's out there already. You just got to collect the information yeah. uh, from people from, and and stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think I 
be open to doing another doc if if the opportunity presented itself. If someone came to me and said, "Hey, I got this idea, and I got a crew, and I got all this," uh, I think something like that would be pretty appealing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll see. It's uh, I'm definitely open to it if if something really cool comes to mind. That's awesome. Well, Mike, I've thoroughly enjoyed our time together. I am so glad that you made metal and horror. It's 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 just thank you for for spending all of those years blood sweat and tears um as we wrap up our time together what wisdom would you like to leave with the listener um i think just to just um you know just be open-minded you know just uh learn to appreciate the hard work that people put into into stuff um one thing that i really learned over the years was to not be unfairly critical you know of of art that people create i think it's very easy for people to go online and say oh that movie sucked and this sucked and that sucks and uh and and, and everything whereas like you know early on like i was kind of pissed off that you know something the film didn't turn out as good as i thought it was going to be or an album wasn't as good as i thought it was going to be and, and i'd be on there complaining and then after a while like when i really started doing my own stuff i'm like man imagine if someone was like talking this much crap about stuff that I'm doing, you know, and I was just getting bad reviews and just like unfair reviews. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't even want to see that stuff. You know what I mean? Because it's like, Oh man, I worked so many years and this people think, you know, this guy thought it sucked. And, you know, even though like you can't really pay attention to that, it's like, it's yeah. It's like, kind of, kind of sticks with you. You know, if, if so, if you created something and people don't like it, you can't please everyone, of course, you can't expect to, but, uh, but I've definitely learned to appreciate the amount of work that people put into the stuff especially when they're really passionate about it so i would just say you know when you're criticizing something try to be as fair with the criticism as possible uh be constructive don't just be don't just try to be outrageous and say you know use the most expletives that you can throw into you know a tweet uh or whatever but um you know then sometimes if you have nothing nice to say you know you don't have to say anything so i've kind of i've kind of made that one of my models as well um, and just let let the artist create, you know, and, and if you don't like it, that's fine. Find something else you do like. Love it. Well, what uh, horror film are you looking forward to watching next? You know, it's, it feels like it's been a little dry lately. I mean, the past couple of years, and I think COVID had a you know, big hand in that. I think it just slowed everything down. Um, I'm curious to see what they do with the next, uh, you know, phase of, of Alien. Um you know, I know they've been working on that, and I've, I've been a little disappointed with the last uh, installments, a couple of installments. I love the original, the first two. You know, Alien and Aliens are, are two of my favorite films of all time. But I'm, I'm hoping that they can kind of recapture what made those films great, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to to seeing what they do with that. Outside of that, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm always trying to like pay attention, you know, and read on what's coming out, but. Uh, you know, I try to stay op- as optimistic as as possible, uh, but but we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully there'll be something really cool on on the horizon. But yeah, I think one of the last, you know, I saw the last Terrifier. I thought that was fun. <laughs> you know, I I'm think that was uh, with that. Oh, Terrifier! Yeah, it's like the the. Um, I mean, I'm sure you've seen the artwork. It's like this uh, this clown with this huge smile, you know, black and white makeup and stuff. Um, but yeah, you should check that check it out. It's like you know, it was kind of like indie. On an indie level, but the second one, they really kind of stepped it up, and and I think it's probably one of the cooler characters that we've seen in horror because it's you know I mean we had Freddy and Jason and Pinhead, 
Leatherface, like all those classic characters, but then everything just kind of stopped and we didn't have any characters, you know, big name characters anymore for a while. But I think the Terrifier clown is probably the first in years uh, that can now be kind of put up, you know, on that mantle and uh, and stuff like that. So so there's still some really good indie stuff. And A24, they're making some really good horror stuff, you know, some good psychological uh, um you know uh horror you know really smart stuff that, that i've been really impressed with so um, hopefully that that trend keeps up i absolutely love this conversation with mike not only was the main conversation about horror and metal a blast but he had so much to say about keeping your creativity alive i hope you'll go back and listen to that But the lasting thought he shared about not being unfairly critical is important. It's one thing to be unfairly critical of others' works, but as creators, I think we let the fear of other people being critical of our own work slow us down. I think that stops us more than it helps us. So when you are working on your work, when you're getting your work to work, How often do you let the fear of what other people could say about your work stop you? The world absolutely needs your work. So don't let the fear of what other people could say stop you. Until next time, may creativity and curiosity fuel your life.